Hello, I'm Rosanne Stainton and I'm joined today by um, my fellow MA writing uh, peers, Nina Hans and Harry Welsh and the artist and RCA faculty member Tai Shani. Thank you for joining us. Um, we each explore bodies in writing, human bodies, bodies of land, rooms, systems and structures. These bodies are networked, hardwired, failing. They are something solid upon which we depend and in a perpetual state of flux. In writing the body, guest chaired by Tai Shani, Turner Prize winning and RCA faculty member, we consider how these bodies become texts, canvases, subjects and signifiers. Through the exploration of different surfaces, textures and embellishments, our definition of the body expands and augments to include the excess but also absence lack. To write these unsettled bodies is to write them into being or allow them to write you into being, to find definition and form. In the Baudelaire Fractal, Lisa Robertson experiences paintings as sensory and translates bodily experience through material means when she recalls her formative years in her grandmother's guest room painting studio. I learned there that when I stood in front of paintings, I could feel an inner in vibration. It entered flatly through the entire surface of my body if I had let myself go blank. My adolescent movement from grandmother's guest room to provincial art museum, I came to think of the mute mineral affinity that accompanied my blankness as a psychic life of pigment. In front of paintings, my body had autonomous gifts, useful only to my own inner experience. This pigment sense didn't have anything to do with representation or style, yet it was dependent on the proportions and specificities of mixture. I think my feeling for painting is a deferred material telepathy, an elemental magnetism. I was noticing a mineral sympathy of my body's ions and copper and calcium towards paint. I learned to still myself, to make room for the strange reception. In the spare room, I first came to the recognition that I could be changed by these little documents of an admixture through the simple attention of a slow non-linguistic perceiving. The change had to do with the deepening sensation of interior space by means of immaterial correspondences. Pigment striates the subject. Mineral affinities act within and across bodies and across times. We are paintings. Um, Nina, over to you. Hi, Shani's practice encompasses performance, film, photography, and sculptural installation, frequently structured around experimental texts, taking inspiration from desperate histories, narratives, and characters' mind from forgotten sources, Shani creates dark, fantastical worlds, brimming with utopian potential. These deeply effective works often combine rich and complex monologues with arresting, saturated installations Manufact uh, manifesting equally disturbing and divine images in the mind of the viewer. Over to you, Tai. Thank you very much. Um, so I, I was thinking about what to read today for, for this really lovely invitation. Thank you for inviting me. It's really a pleasure to be here with you. And I was thinking about the bodies in um, the, the book, um, our Fatal Magic, which is a collection of texts from uh, my DC Productions project. And I thought I was, I'd read from the teenager character because um, in many ways, 
the body of the teenager is the most terrestrial and the, the most ordinary in many ways, but also the most kind of uh, contemporarily mined uh, body in our culture as well. So I thought that, um, you know, a lot of the bodies in, in, in the, the um, book, they, they're very fluid, um, both in terms of gender, but also in terms of their ability to heal or um, the way that they interface with technology. And I think this one is the most um, rooted in experiences of a feminized uh, young body experiences that, I, I, that are personal to me, I guess. So I'm reading a little section from um, the teenager. Inside, the surface quickly marbled, the classic veins swelled, blurred by heart-compressing bass, dilating then spreading, blotting darkness till all light was absorbed and it was absolute night. I lost my shadow to the dark. Quicksilver mercury strobes stopped time and momentarily revealed their still wondrous faces. Suspended angels, Gabriel, Abaddon, Anel, and Uriel. Their heads flung back, slack-jawed, eyes half-closed and holy. Wonderful little pagans, I love you. Later in the neon cradle of light, then the velvet cradle of night, curly-whirly wrappers twirled in a baroque vision on the passenger seat of a borrowed car. We marveled in silence at the conquest. Evaporating bone and flesh ladder, slapping sounds erupted, interrupting the concentrated labor of being elsewhere. Films, television, and books gave me the blueprint of how to look engaged while waiting for, patiently for it to be over. I spit on your grave. Beware of the touch. From a different car window, the past instantaneously formed in front of our very eyes and backdropped the glowing validation of their satisfaction. Both these things fell away from us quickly with the speed of high BPM and the lightness of carried horizons as we traveled in a neon hieroglyphic encryption towards the namelessness of psychedelic emancipation. White doves rushed in with those angels and thrust me into a loving communion. I love you. We will always be this way. We will always know each other and we will always belong here. This is everything. Often in the diminishing echo of pleasure, my face became a sculpture, an undying monument to the contagion of sadness. On the tight weave of my jeans, a plump milky lagoon whose shores disappeared beneath its spreading reach, fed from a viscous waterfall from high above. The mouth of the sauce, smeared reddish, swollen and softly parted. A strain in my jaw, syrupy saliva gathered and frothed at the corner where the stretch reveals true pink, the th slippery threshold of plush mouth interiors and the glossy hot rod red of my public and painted quiet mouth. That milk that flows against all the laws of nature is galactic and sweet and silky like mulberry wine, like buckfast. Diminishing returns, diminishing horizons. I was pulled back from the precipice. I answered, yes, I enjoyed it too. Yes, very much. Yes, just like you, I want to be human. This was very natural. 
nature and I ached beautifully for their brutality, where they all systematically refused to. That's it. <laughs> Thank you so much, Ty. Um, so I'm going to read a section from my final major project for the MA writing course here at RCA. Um, my project was called Chronic on Textures, Illness and the Endless Scroll. And I wanted to write about the body and its porousness and how skin is fabric and the materiality of the body and illness. So this chapter is called Dressing the Body in Sickness, the Skin Does Not Protect from the Inside Out. Lineage of spaces. The weave of a cloth leaves spaces, gaps, thresholds. There are small spaces between the weave, the warp and the weft. The hundreds and thousands of tiny crisscrossing threads that culminate into one piece of cloth. Cut and then stitched and joined together to make multiple pieces that cover and complete your body. From your fingers to your toes, you can be clothed and covered or exposed and parts of the body appear like a fractured image that come together to create a whole. Layers of thread give way to underneath layers of skin. The upper structure crafted out of wool, cotton, yarn, woven and weaving into another layer of what you can consider epidermis. Another constructed coating that is between you and the exterior. Woven sheets build up and create layers upon layers, which in turn create material that covers your body Underneath, there is then flesh. Then, go further. There are tendons, ligaments, a webbing of organic structures joined together to create one living being in symbiosis, in balance. One body that inhales and exhales, consumes energy and burns energy. A human that has a relationship with everything in the environment, non-human, organic and inorganic. When you were first ill, you wore looser clothes on days you felt worse. Slip-on shoes, oversized t-shirts, soft jumpers which hung from your shoulders, a specific pair of trousers where the buttons that would normally hold them together were broken so that they would only suspend from your hips, and a coat that wasn't too heavy as to not weigh on your body. This is a form of coping with chronic illness and chronic pain, cradling yourself through material means. Clothing can cradle the body if you want it to, and if you consider that the material that covers your skin is almost holding you together. The fabric that coats our bodies is often assumed to be something flippant, yet in our ever-digitized world and immaterial world, clothes are something material that as a society, we still have to engage with. We move through a liquid culture, constantly in flux, surrounded by the digital and the intangible, but the material that covers our bodies remains exactly that, physical. Clothes encase our figures. They can smooth and soothe or contain and control. Clothing turns our bodies temporarily into one continuous surface, presenting the form temporarily as something whole and complete, when the reality may be much more fragmented. Clothing contains implicit statements and can expose our own vulnerabilities and therefore dressing the body can be a disguise or an exposition. Clothing can conceal an illness further or make it visible. Material can soothe our pain or swaddle a body that feels no other comfort. Yet, is certain clothing only for those, who, those whose bodies perform and function under an understanding of the body that is focused on productivity and profit? 
A neoliberal understanding of our corporal forms is one which centers around the ideas of bodies being for financial gain and bodies functioning as if they are machines. Health as a stable entity and optimized performance. Clothing is therefore often a key part of the performance that we engage in, performing this high functioning that our culture demands. The clothing we dress ourselves in when ill depends on the temporality of the sickness. Temporal factors can affect the way we clothe our bodies and a dizzying fever may require different dressing from an enduring lethargy. Tissue is skin. Enclosing the figure in, in cloth covering the form in material, the body is swathed in tissue and textile. The openings and closings of clothing, the clasp leaves an indent in the small of your back. Small silk covered circular shapes snake up the S shape of your spine. They are what joins one side of silk to another, but only when they are bound together by another circular elastic fastening. The one that has no name, but holds the larger circle in place. Supposedly Siri can hear the metal teeth in a zip engage and mistakes the sound for a wake word. As you or I unzip and undress or dress, Siri awakens and understands. A hook and an eye, a button and a clasp, they link inside one another. One is a U-shaped piece of fine metal, another is two pieces running parallel and folded. When they link together, they hold the clothing tight to your body. They encapsulate it. One piece of fabric folds over another. Loop, under, over, knot, pull through and again. Fabric skims the skin. Clothes do not need to touch the flesh underneath how like you think that they should. They do not need to caress the structure. The body is supposedly self-sufficient. Sculpting, packaging, smoothing, draping. The frame underneath is covered in a complex webbing of muscle, then cartilage, and finally epidermis built up to create what you once considered a barrier, and now consider a perhaps futile protection. Note and contemplate that the skin does not protect from the inside out, and that there is nothing that can protect you from your own body attacking itself. Clothing also cannot shelter you from the outside world. It is permeable, a half border, a borderline with a potential to be traversed, an undefined edged. It is a threshold between your flesh and the exterior world, but one that does not yet protect or insulate in a most, more than a most basic sense. It does protect your form in the most literal way, but not in the ways that you wish that it would. How could it protect you from the inside or from yourself? The clothing that you wear is almost the image of an imagined aura around the body, an exaggerated delicate line tracing the outsides of your form, yet somehow removed from the edges. These edges are ambiguous anyway. You become the environment and the environment becomes you. Both borders are permeable. The fabric gathers, creases or folds, creates an abundance around the figure. There is just too much. Thank you so much, Harry. Um, hi, I'm Nina Hans. I'm a German-American poet and writer, and I'm going to be reading a section from my project Underdays, uh, which is an experimental recitation of Western Germany's coal industry and how ore bodies here overlap with our own lives and histories. Yesterday, I read the first half of this chapter at an event hosted by Arts at the Assembly House in Norwich. Um, and it's still on YouTube if you'd like to check it out later. Um, Harry and 
rows also have a work um, read aloud, and so does our other course mate, Esme Bogus. Uh, the chapter which I've read, which I'm reading from today, um, earlier I was discussing kind of the structures and functions of the lungs and how breathing plays an important role in poetry as well as in mining. Together we looked at um, both the ground and the atmosphere as a way of processing grief. Um, and in the section that I'm about to read now, I begin to link what I previously established about the poetry of breathing with excess cancer, and then to its following absence, and what we may do with the empty space when we experience loss. I do mention mental health briefly in this passage, so if you'd like to skip ahead, I'm just going to be reading for about 10 minutes. It's difficult to imagine him as part of them, the miners, him, my great grandfather. It is difficult to imagine him at all, rarely seen in pictures. All I see of him now is dust particles and vapors, not even as ash. Instead, his face is dark, gritty, and gray, sometimes vermilion. To me, he is only fine coal, powdered, the microscopic dust of alkaline asbestos. Nickel, arsenic, chloromethyl ether, all the substances that linger until cancer lung cancer, his cancer, lungs exposed to cold dust build little walls around collagen networks found in the upper region of the lungs. In the respiratory bronchioles, these tiny branches, like airway tunnels, lead to nodular alveoli sacs. They get layered with dust until masses of dense fibrosis develop. Between these stages, little orbs of black begin to speckle on human tissue until these cluster merge and become one, until the lungs become black like the coal itself, hard and inky. This is what happened to my great-grandfather, his lungs, until they found their way back to the ground, this time the cemetery. I'm writing this now because I don't want the same thing to happen to my father, the being forgotten. I fill his space with words so he never stops speaking of him, reading of him, so his presence still passes through our lungs as we speak, breathe, read. I'm writing these layers until I feel he, my father, is the center of my own earth, deep down, but important. Alma Eni dies in her sleep, heart failure. Her ill-explained Ill scab still healing on her cheek, her jawline. Her dementia never revealed to us where her bruises came from, her thin blood under all too thin skin, like wrapping paper so fragile. My mother goes on to tell me how it happened, how she died. But after F's suicide, I stopped looking for explanations. Still, I say nothing as she continues, it was heart failure, a heart unable to pump blood and oxygen into her small sleeping body. I don't remember crying. Mama says, there was a complication with her medication. And I hadn't, but I hadn't known. And a few days prior, doctors had found water in her lungs seeping into channels, spaces where they didn't belong. The same dish towel squeeze of tunnel danger, of mining, as if her body was under the same earth pressure her shrinking figure, a body of human rainwater. 
She hadn't cried in years, my Alma. All the tears she couldn't release from old age or antidepressants instead, collecting in her lungs, making more mining tunnels throughout the region. When a heart stops, arteries can no longer pump oxygen to the body and cannot remove the carbon dioxide from its tissues. This causes cells to lose their structural integrity over time, slowly. It's autolysis, autodigestion, decomposition for new life, plant life. Did the birds like the cemetery because of the berries or for the emptiness, the quiet? I envy you for forgetting, for moving on, a luxury not allotted to our family nuclear, to the birds' mid-migration. It's psychological, the clue that sends them flying, with the restlessness of shorter days and winds drifting. Like little meteorologists, birds sense Earth's changes. A family of bird senses, my family is more bird-like than I've previously led on. Generations of migration and years of moving, of airplane flying and foot stomping. My family has and continues to spread across multiple continents, making my fascination with this region. The province of Vespalia, so voyeuristic. Am I right to claim it my home? Or have I been lying through my writing, constructing a false home from a place I've never lived, writing through the unblinking black of a bird's eye? of you picking and poking, probing through someone else's property, making it my own and claiming the land through migration. But birds don't really have homes and nests are just another place to fall from. Sometime in the early 1910s, John Scott Haldane, known as the British father of oxygen theory, begins to recommend birds as detectors of harsh toxic gases in small mining spaces. These canaries sing to themselves, maybe of their loneliness underground, but in their silence, in their sickness or their death, the miners can evacuate, their lives saved by the risk of another's. This is how the miners must have learned to value singing, why they kept their hymns and poetry tradition as caged birds sing, sing, so do the miners, giving themselves an atmosphere of fresh breathing, producing something that takes the place of fresh air in their lungs crumbling. Their deep breaths giving the illusion to the outside in the closing in of tunnels and their ostensibly endless rock masses. The best part of a canary will always be its voice their projection from their lungs. That's why they're used for it, why their little bodies are put under, deep in Earth's pressure. Their most valuable asset is consumed by another. In our family of senses, my words are the loudest, not the sweetest or sing-songiest. It's communal pressure, the loss, but I'm the only one speaking between silences, the breaths we try to clench, hold in our lungs and hide away. Family psychology tells us, this, tells us this is normal. In a family, there's usually one amplifying and singing of stress, the pressures of collective trauma, 
We are all in the same tunnel, but only I am the canary calling. So I turn to writing. There's a poetry to breathing, the rhythm of each line, like a pause of a heartbeat, the, the pacing of each poem, the rhythm like a hymn, controlled inhales and exhales, unconscious lungfuls made to be controlled. When we read poetry, we plan our breath accordingly, like the pause at the end of a line. Even when not spoken out loud, our speed is set by lungs, this is biology. This is the cadence of breathing that makes a text a poem, with each poem needing silence, space, the fresh air between words, letters, the punctuation of a single speck, a dot that is also a circle, a cycle. Blood pumps in a centrifugal manner and implied geometry until one day it stops. A doctor is telling us what has happened. He said it was an instant darkness. When the brain gets pushed away with blood's pressure, the overfilling is an instant dusk. A shade found previously only in the earth's holes and underground passages. And what is left is a fearful silence. And for him, artificial breaths until no longer blood cancer. The last words my father spoke were nonsense. Words failing, falling. Some ornithologists hypothesize that light quality affects how canaries sing. Maybe this is what was happening. Thank you. So I am um, going to read a kind of revised extract from my um, final major project um, at RCA, um, which was titled Three Graces and Voids and is a reappraisal of femininity through the prism of the three graces from Greek mythology. Um, this extract um, takes a slightly different route and concentrates on the term extra as in abundance, but also as in resistance. There is a room, it pulsates and shudders in a gravitational wheel of blasted stars or satellites that pull across its walls, the asymmetry of a globular cluster spreading. Inside the room is a din of synthetic pink, sparks of lilac light, plastic rainbow stamp, dusky cloud. Inside the din is a girl, of gemstone stars, flower beads, and cosmic glitter. Inside the girl is a desire, or something dressed like desire. Of style, as in surfaces, Lisa Cohen writes that it is at once fleeting and lasting, and it has everything to do with excess. It is too much, and it is nothing at all. And it tells all kinds of stories about the seams between public and private life, an expression of the wish to exceed and confound expectations, to be exceptional, style is a response to the terror of invisibility and isolation, a wish for inclusion. 
There is a room, there is a din, there is a girl, there is a desire that is more like a longing. Oh, the mess, the excess, wrote Kate Zambrino. An abundance scored with dark smudges like pubic hair or bruises that goes beyond the plastic and assumed. Let's name it extra. Once a prefix or preamble, extra meant outside, except beyond, from exter being on the outside shifting into additional or superior, a loaded term of having more than being more than, before announcing itself as only such a word would in our modern day lexicon as a statement of criticality, of being or acting or looking too much, a beyond that circles back to those early forms of exter. And it's got everything to do with the body performed and adorned. I've been thinking about how it's slippery and sharp in definition, like a petrified slug or a slick talon, how it oscillates between vilification of excess and veneration of success, how it might be understood by generation Y and alpha as over the top, but how it might also be akin to Susan Sontag's camp, an art whose goal is not that of creating harmonies, but overstraining the medium and introducing more and more violent and unresolvable subject matter. It's something like the flair of Baroque, the pastel orchestra of Rococo, the exaggeration of mannerism, but unlike their regulation by church and state, extra is defined by those perceived to lack because society's bar is set to white heteronormativity and everything else is a sliding scale. Women, too emotional, black people, too loud, immigrants, too many. And as such, extra articulates both the richness and trappings of intersectionality, a movement defined by those points where class, race and sex meet. It also mirrors collective resistance, a bubbling up, witnessed in the satellite allyship of Black Lives Matters, not a set of steady grooves, but clusters without a single nucleus. Extra with that rare cross at its centre, returns it to its roots as ill-fitting, irregular, for anyone deemed on the outside, in high volume and high visibility, urges us to recognise and challenge the confinement of surfaces. The drag queen flourishes in periods when gender category categories become very strict, says Glenn Balvino in Two Spirits Speak Out, 1992. It is true, notions of gender have been renounced and reconstituted in different moments of our collective psyche. In the, drag, in the dragging of RuPaul's Drag Race and the overstraining of Sontag's camp, in the high volume of pink in Pink Flamingos and the inordinate long neck of Parmigiano's Madonna. A ruddy noble decked in O'Donnell declares, women have no desires, only affectations. He is sitting with some other guys and Orlando in Sally Potter's filmic version of Virginia Woolf's gender-bending fiction. In turn, these men tell Orlando, all beehive and bustles and mute, what it is to be a woman. Women are, ch are children of larger growth, are beautiful things to be adorned in pearls and furs. Despite the excess proffered by men for boasting propriety in a silk stocking or a corkscrew curl, and the crushed gemstone lip paint of Sumerian tribesmen. Women, whoever finds themselves as such, have been associated with both the flesh of abundance, the heat of emotion, the mess of blood, and high shine of surfaces. The stockings as binding, laces, lace veils as evasion, the claws for cut diamonds, a trap. Let's name this thing extra feminine. We see it in these moments in art, in literature and life, when women make tonal, material and textual revisions to their prescribed form and in, do so, and in doing so start to feminise the canon. I think of Judy Chicago's atmospheres, 
a performance that introduced coloured smoke and firework to outdoor locations in a bid to feminise the male-dominated land art scene. I think too of a carnal and resplendent Colette brunette, or Dolly Parton's hair, or the, or the young Zealous Amy and Little Women who mistakes enthusiasm for inspiration. Beyond naming a thing, there are other risks. The extra comes to define race. Sapphires, Jezebels, angry black women are relentless stereotypes from the past and present. Serena Williams, bigger than and outspoken. Nina Simone, angry and loud. In thick, Tressie McMillan cotton explores another loaded term, another dichotomy of abundance, the goodness of extra thick cream, the badness of veiled intellect. Macmillan Cotton recounts being lost in 32 in Charlotte, North Carolina, in Rudines, which sold fish and chicken wings in the heart of the old black middle-class neighbourhood. A man sidles up to her at the bar and says, your hair thick, your nose thick, your lips thick, all of you just thick. It was true, if not artfully stated, being too much of one thing and not enough of another had been a recurring theme in my life. I was, like many young women, expected to be small so that boys would expand and white girls shrink. When I would not or could not shrink, people made sure that I knew I had erred. The mechanics of femininity of ornament and performance get strained in the satirical prose and languid humour of French writer Colette's short stories. She achieves a similar textual quality of excess when she dresses her brunette for battle in Miraflay. Brunette is resplendent, dressed entirely in grey velvet with panels of flame-coloured beads, silver fox furs round her neck, wearing shoes with sequins, feathers and strass, embroidered funnel-shaped gloves and a hat like coloured like a cloud of aggregates, hanging like a threatened storm over two stars. She is resplendent with that slightly crude elegance that people like today. Those layers of materiality are heady, and the long bloated syntax mirrors the point circular and constrained in a sentence that begins and ends with resplendent. As the story unfurls, the mechanics break and the brunette and blonde dissolve, or perhaps its transformation in metaphor, as peacocks with plumage, pigeons with jutting nets, the crumpled facade of a pug dog. In another pithy vignette titled The Judge, Colette narrates the response of an aging woman to her severe new haircut. With the art of a painter who enhances the colour of a landscape flooded by sudden sunshine, she added some rouge to her bare ears, her temples, and under her eyebrows, covering her entire face with a shade of pink powder that she rarely used. Colette's rouged woman is a sad clown, like the girl in her din is a wishful boudica. They share an intention to make up, to imagine, but unable to stop, unable to put the brush down, slip past beautification into something formerly grotesque made of war paint and weaponry and coal and whale blubber. Bubbling over, Dolly Parton's 1973 album is fronted by an image of Parton's head with peroxide halo emerging from a plume of fountain water. And then there she is again in the background in a citrus hued dress in front of a swimming pool. A reviewer, a reviewer in Clashbox wrote of her, in her new release will, elic will elicit immediate effervescence upon the initial listening, but then again, isn't that what bubbling over is all about? This immediate effervescence, like the ecstasy of holy fountain water, mirrors Parton's story of hunger to excess. Hers is an enlarged femininity, one that she employs in and through that sweet voice, the flaxen big hair, the plasticized body, to articulate another kind of womanhood. This conscious exploitation of the feminine is epitomized in her acrylic talons, 
that look like vanity, but when she buffs them together, make a beat. Playing with Dolly was just such an intense musical experience, said Mike Sebbers, a former guitarist. We were just all so much in awe of the, of the songs and the music that you, would almost, you could almost forget a whole larger than life persona. Sever's praise is scorned with society's desire to suppress a woman's bigness in order to extract the beauty or the art. But the bigness is Parton's art. From inside her diminutive body, she seeks boundlessness, which is another kind of refusal. I wince when Kylie Minogue says that hers is a feminism in disguise, but I suppose we all wear masks. An extra is about the lack in luster, it's about the empty space that we can work to fill. Perhaps I've sugar-coated, coated it in ribbons and bows and cosmic glitter. Like naming anything, it runs the risk of being abused by the structures from which we're trying to break free. It also mimics in painting words the kind of physical throwaway abundance that adds coal to the fire of ecological collapse. But for all that opacity and mess and those contradictions, young still and ill-defined, Extra can grow roots as a provocation of refusal, and in its refusal, like our refusal, we can say, not that, but something else, because this thing is too much and never enough, but aren't we all? Great, thank you. That was really great to, to hear you all read your work. Um, one thing that I was thinking about while listening, um, sorry, it's a bit off the cuff, but it just kind of really um, drew me, was how, in a way, in Harriet and in Nina, you, you both write about the body in a very kind of, um, it's almost like, the, which I do as well, actually, it's a creation of a kind of universal body through the microscopic. And then Rose, yours is almost an inversion of that, but is the same thing which is a kind of um i guess a writing of an excess that that oozes out and becomes a surface but that that surface itself is also uh almost like a, a, a glorious excessive wrapping that could engulf anybody anybody yeah um so i, I wanted to like talk a little well hear your thoughts really about scale in your writing and also, you know, we're living in a moment where I guess bodies are more politicized than ever, both through COVID and um, the George Floyd and Black Lives Matter protests that, um, that have been going on lately. Um, I think, you know, the kind of intersectional awareness of what is a body in society. But I also understand the kind of utopian, because I, I, I also am like that. A desire to to kind of almost disentangle uh, a hostile political world from the body and go into this almost like um, yeah almost like a landscape of, of cellular um, activity which kind of depoliticizes it but so does um, a kind of shiny surface of uh, affective kind of visual uh, signifiers you know that are rooted in different histories for yeah it's a kind of different relationship I guess a relationship with an exteriority through surface so maybe we could talk a little bit about that um, <laughs> yeah no I think that's I think there's there's lots of um, 
really useful points in that. And kind of going back to one of the earlier questions within that question about scale, um, I think that's something that um, I, I sort of, um, yeah, I, I struggled with, like you said, I did the kind of inverse to the others that I'm taking something quite, um, something quite big and all encompassing. And I think I just, um, that became, it was like, where do you draw lines and where do you stop and, and what to include and what to do, but at the same time trying to proffer this mess and abundance in the text and it, and something that my tutor Emily said actually was like, um, you've got to, you've got to take some stuff out because it's too much. But I was sort of resistant because it became, it became um, the thing that I was trying to say and like how difficult it is to navigate um, and navigate these spaces in, in a body that is highly politicized um, at whatever scale. I don't know if that answers. Yeah, I think um, my text has like massive scales because it begins with this prehistoric um, description of where Nordrhein-Westfalen was, which was, you know, at that time on what we'd call the equator now. Um, so it really like has like massive time scales. Um, and within that kind of, like for me, the only way I could describe about this huge body of land is through like the microscopic. But because of this larger scale of time, I was able to kind of like bring in more um, intersectional feminist um, ideas, like mainly it's about conservation and the environment. But that is like, we're still in a climate emergency right now. That is, you know, on top of Black Lives Matter and the COVID um, pandemic. Like it's um, also something that we like all need to balance and it's a little overwhelming and like all, you know, excessive, um, but just kind of like our reality, I guess. <laughs> I guess also with what you were saying about scale, I think all of the texts kind of have this idea of going like in and outside of the body, like Nina through the like cavitation and Rose with you talking about like the excess and the kind of like the ways that the like the female body is potentially excessive um and then yeah that's something that i wanted to address in my text as well like going from kind of the cellular cellular level to the level of one body to the level of lots of bodies and what that interaction can mean yeah i mean i i definitely i mean for me i i do recognize also that when i when i write in that way when i write in this kind of um you know this very finely detailed um set on a cellular level kind of or even on an atomic level i do recognize in myself also a resistance to uh want to kind of i guess commit to to a, 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 the politicization of my own body if that makes sense and I think that that's, you know, like that is, I wonder what you think about, like, does that ring true at all to any of you? Um, you know, I think it, we also are, you know, where I'm a cis white woman and my body is also uh, political, very political. But I'm also, of course, you know, I prefer to write 
with an emancipation from that, I guess. And one way to do it is to kind of uh, go into the details of how bodies navigate. But I also think, you know, I don't think that, I think it's also grounds for solidarity. I don't think it's just grounds for uh, a refusal of the politicization of oneself. But I do definitely recognize that in, for me. And I wonder what you think about that. <laughs> um, I think it's like, you know, it's like you said, the kind of idea of recognizing that and then also writing at this sort of cellular level that is kind of really interesting in thinking about uh, moving away from the politicization of bodies. But that at the same time, inevitably, by writing the body, it is political already. Um, and yeah, we have, we have to acknowledge it. Um, but yeah, I, I think there's kind of a, um, a movement between those sort of two, and that those two things don't have to be like binary opposites in some kind of way. Yeah, I think there's also something to be said about all of our work we when we do zoom in to these like small things we're not necessarily like fracturing it maybe like segmenting it and part of that is kind of like at least um in my text very violent uh, because this place is has had some like the land has had so much like trauma done on to it um through mining but also um through war and uh you know being regulated by various countries during um reconstruction and um yeah i think that's kind of what i was kind of seeking to as well with this fragmentation but also just for my own like as someone who has uh, been diagnosed with ptsd i've worked very hard um to kind of normalize my life and you know uh be like able again uh that um yeah that i kind of, like I, I i was kind of like seeking like like i knew after like the the death of my father which was uh, very like it was cancer but not totally how you would imagine cancer in like the movies <laughs> it was uh, like a lot quicker and it was very rare and aggressive um and within 30 minutes uh he had passed away and um on top of it, it happened in a car and we were in another country and um, it was quite frightening. And then so since that, like my brain is just different and I've had to work with that. And part of that is this kind of um, fragmentation or just like fragmentation of my focus. And um, I think in all of my writing, I try to be very um, like honest about that and uh, not, not necessarily giving away or, or like representing how people with PTSD think and write, but just like kind of how I write with PTSD and um, how that's reflected in my own writing. And then also like, uh, I just had this beautiful overlap when I was writing about the land and like continuing with this kind of overlapping structure and where it's fragmented and focused uh, that it would, it kind of like built up like the land itself and fragmented and like sometimes tectonic plates shift and overlap and um, I was, yeah, it was kind of like a happy accident, this wild thing <laughs> that I was just writing. And then I was like, oh, it's just as acute and aggressive as, you know, the cancer was to my experience as 
um, you know, what happens to the land over time. It's just a different time frame, I guess. Yeah. yeah. But there's also something interesting there about the, like, about duration and about how unstatic we are and how, you know, like, even since we wrote these texts so much, like Ty is saying, has, has changed and our relationship to our, to our own bodies, bodies have changed and bodies have gained layers from, from like, from, from what, what else is going on um, between us or amongst us or apart. But, um, but I think it's interesting, this idea as well of like how we, for me, it was like the political in it on a personal level, like was the, like how we occupy space and in a way the, Occupying space meant me like um, amassing all this stuff to sort of try and try and um, work through it um, and um, yeah and 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 I felt like it was a, it was a kind of a very deeply personal process that like this is only a, a tiny fragment of of the of the things that I amassed that have some like logic some like sort of system to them that is also a bit like a body or a body of work but then also um also it sometimes can be very hard to rationalize but you just know that for you they fit together and they do something important that's almost like kind of cathartic in you trying to work to reach some um a new uh, level of understanding about yourself and then how you fit into a bigger picture. I don't know if that... that no, helps. definitely. I think, I mean, I think if anything, it really kind of lays bare, you know, a, a, not necessarily a problem, but a kind of tension, let's say, between, um, you know, when, when one writes through and about the body, I feel that it's, you know, you're often there things that touch upon typical and extraordinary trauma you know, both kind of, uh, and also gender trauma and, and um, yeah, just everyday kind of um, situations to the most extraordinary. And, and these things and how these acts are played out in um, the public sphere become, they all are po political, aren't they? But we experience it through a very kind of ineffable language of the body. And, you know, I think that when we write about um experiences through that we are we do center ourselves of course you know because it's the interface as well and we are in a way writing about that specific interface even if we're writing about others you know even if we're writing about other people's bodies and other people's experiences of illness or of uh, sexuality or of um anything really um we, we also can't speak for for others but we also you know I think when we write, we do so through a process of, of an imaginary identification as well. Yeah. And, um, you know, one imagines what it's like to lose a finger if one writes about losing a finger and one draws upon, you know, a kind of wealth of experiences that would be, that would have some kind of proximity to that happening, I guess. So I think it, it does lay bare that tension of this moment, this historic, you know, like historically, and um our voices and writing through our bodies even you know when we're trying to kind of extend far beyond that 
what you know it's a vessel and a prison at once isn't it as well mm -hmm. um I, I was wondering what were there other like you know it's a lot of it's it's a kind of not zeitgeisty but i think it's um in the re-emergence of feminist discourse over the last 10 years let's say writing about the body in has become a very central focus of it are there works that you feel were um relevant or kind of informed your your writing practices yeah i guess i can start um actually i have a whole like recommended reading list of <laughs> that I felt inspired me but didn't actually go into the bibliography of my final major project under days um, and one of these is um, a poem by um, Edna St. Vincent um, Millet, and it's called Renaissance. And it's not really about the human body. Well, it is, but it's really about like this beautiful description of the land. Um, and there is this beautiful part um, towards the ending where she like hears the raindrops on like the tin the tin roof I believe and um, then that kind of like wakes her up from this like I guess like natural sublime uh, that and you know the weight of the world that um, she's feeling and kind of like reawakens her and like gives her like new life that like this um, these these like raindrops can kind of like like are the catalyst of like what awakens her and like for me, like it's really like this stepping out of like um, like depression and suicide into like something else. Um, so it is about her body and um, but more laced with nature, which I think just uh, is what makes sense for me. <laughs> um, yeah, I think I was drawn to two works or writers that really like. Um, that had this sort of textural quality that I was like speaking or um, and and that kind of like spans um, like Annie Dillard in terms of the way that she writes about place and about um, in environment again in a sort of extremely sensory as a sensory experience as um, a personal experience, her return again and again to Tinker Creek every day for years and years and then um, and what happens with that and then also um, the kind of imagined landscape that Ty you were talking about early on of like Ursula Le Guin um, but that again has like a very um, there's like a, a, a texture that feels very sort of um, artificial or something um, which comes back in the Colette piece and then thinking of that in relationship to someone to, to Audre Lorde's uses of the erotic and, ha and the plasticization of the erotic and which also returns to your um, teenager tie that you know you were reading from as well at the beginning and, and um, the way that that writers um, adopt a surface and like that's something I'm interested in and Lisa Robertson who I read from at the beginning um, definitely um, does that particularly in relationship to, to clothes and garments in a really interesting way although I've only just got, in, got into her um, 
I think like Nina said, um, yeah, I have a lot of reading that kind of didn't make it into the bibliography, which sort of sat around the text. Um, I really enjoyed reading Daisy Hiljar's The Second Body and this kind of ideas of bodies being porous and how the environment affects our bodies and that our bodies affect the environment. This kind of idea of interconnectivity um, and also a lot of artist work kind of fed into that as well. Um, and also in the way of um, like this idea of texture, like you were saying, Rose, like this idea of texture and material, um, but also kind of quite a few sort of sickness memoirs, um, such as like Sick by Porokista Kapoor, like reading things where people are kind of working through their own um, experience with illness and their experience with their bodies, but also these, how that kind of fits into the wider landscape of like the politicization of our bodies. Um, and yeah, on that note, one of the, I guess one of the first things that like I read wanting to write about this was Sick Woman Theory by Johanna Hedver. Um, and this idea of kind of like the reclamation of the word sick and thinking about what that means in relation to like politics and, and how she writes about, um, how they write about in 2015, like wanting to go out and protest but not being able to. Um, and these kind of like, in, again, like the intersections of those um, areas. So yeah, I think there was a lot of things that sort of sat around my research, but yeah, this, um, especially the ideas of like the, the body and the environment, the body in space and how those, how those things kind of all are, all are so connected. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, also thinking about the category of um, sick or ill and how that kind of, the, the, um, I guess, the borderlands between being not ill and ill um, are, are being really like evaporated by our proximity to this pandemic, being inside it and seeing um, such huge numbers of people become sick, you know, yeah. like from something that wasn't there before. I think it does really change. I mean, for me, definitely, it does change how I think about the body as a kind of much more, um, I guess, like, yeah, something that isn't fixed, not not only in terms of gender or, you know, sexuality, but in terms of it being also something that can traverse um, illness as well and, and all the kind of discourse around um, how we think of illness and how we think of... Um, survival and you know all, all of these kind of discussions that ha have emerged into a very uh, collective and um, everyday psyche which I think is really interesting in terms of thinking about how one continue you know but also our bodies that have been isolated as well you know so we also like uh, don't have the privilege of experiencing things together physically you know so we can I mean the kind of provisions that are being made afford us to continue being productive in a very neoliberal kind of capitalist sense and to continue performing labor but for me you know one of the things that is most devastating apart from yeah the kind of decimation of the health care in this country and the illness itself and it claiming the lives and making people ill and, and those left behind as well but it's also thinking about how we you know the for me experiencing things together you know whether they are 
loved experiences or new ones is um, one of the most life-affirming things we have as social creatures. And seeing policy being architected in a way that that is completely, which, I mean, I don't mind the fact that it's not, I don't mind. I think we do need to isolate ourselves, but I, I, I find it depressing that, you know, the, that productivity and labor are being prioritized as, um, yeah, like, you know, that we are reconceptualizing our bodies as tributes to a kind of system that, you know, is supposed to support us and not the opposite, really. So, yeah, it's an interesting moment, I think, as well, on, on a broad uh, sense, thinking about the body and illness all around us. And also thinking about the, the um, face masks and us and our like, relation to the face masks and like how like apparently a lot of early early Boris Johnson supporters have turned on him because they see it as a kind of disregard with their freedom bringing back the yeah the legal requirement of the face mask and calling it a muzzle which I think is also really interesting in relationship to the body and and um and what it says about the people that don't yeah. want to wear a mask you know. <laughs> if they see it as a muscle yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> very strange um but but yeah i think i think that's also really interesting and in how um and also like people saying oh that they'd be used as a as a distraction or a kind of like a um, disguise mechanism for people doing bad things and so that creates another that so it separates us even further we're already separated mm -hmm. on so many levels it's not actually the face mask, but the way that people interpret that or use or kind of abuse it as a, um, yeah, uh, as something to divide us seems, seems odd. It's like what's come to signify is so much more than it originally was. But I think that's also to do with a kind of um, an alignment, you know, like post Brexit, a kind of alignment with um, America, with America in many ways. And, you know, I think this idea of personal liberty, which is very much uh, constitutionally embedded within American culture, uh, you know, which here is less so, but is becoming uh, uh, promoted, you know, I yeah. think socially as as a important value, you know, it's an anti socialist mm -hmm. kind of position, personal freedom. No, it's um, I, I, I would privilege collective responsibility any any day over that. But, you know, I think there is um, a kind of drive to align ourselves culturally away from Europe as well. Yeah. And to me, I don't know if this might be far fetched, but I do feel that this kind of new, um, yeah, real kind of obsession with personal freedom is is also a kind of, um, yeah, like a kind of cultural alignment with american kind mm. of society in a way yeah, yeah. and that hyper individualization yeah is, is yeah very um is seems even more personal like pertinent now with the kind of the way that we are being divided there was a bit in my in this text that i took out actually that we talked about before extra this term of like the nasty girl and then the unruly woman and the way that these discourses happen and how then like nasty became you know was then kind of uh, contaminated by Donald Trump and trying to def you know defame um, Hillary Clinton during the election and so these, these terms get then kind of 
um, distorted again and again and then become something else entirely um, and or used by you know like um, pop stars and so on to promote a kind of fake feminism or mainstreamed feminism that is actually hyper-individualizing discourse that's mm. like me um, yeah um maybe it makes sense since i i read quite a short segment um to go back to that text and to read a little segment more about um exactly i think what you're talking about rose um which yeah i think might be a good way to bookend yeah, uh, the, the discussion and it's got masturbation in it so that's always a good thing um, hi, I got hit by a truck. I broke my hand in two places. It was my right hand. It was just so you know that I'm able to be delicate. My body can be broken. I am still masturbating with this hand held tight in a flesh-toned splint, even though it is broken and it hurts badly, particularly when I'm about to come and have to move it faster and harder to keep up with my vanishing self. I want to tell you about my masturbation to show you that I am free and desirous, that where I maybe lack the looks that you feel so entitled to, I will make up in promiscuity and a bottomless eagerness to please you all. And also I want you to know that I am extremely tough, tough enough to endure your violence, not afraid of pain in the search for your pleasure, and that I obediently extend this invitation to be destroyed to you all, boys of my late girlhood. Can we all please agree to protect my precious purity? I could also grant you unreserved access to obliterate it. Like everything else, death itself is devastatingly slipping through my fingers. My sister of mercy, fuck me and marry me young. I'm really begging you. Thank you so much. That was Thank you. Really, yeah. <laughs> Um, and yeah, uh, thank you for giving us. No, thank you for the invitation, and also to think about. Yeah, I think it's it's a really, you know, like in in Nina, I could really feel um, the kind of you, you know when you lay bare the interior mechanisms and the kind of ecology of the body, how delicate we. I think we all feel quite delicate and fragile. And you know, prone to being breached by a virus, or but I think that extends beyond that, in a way, because I feel like it kind of makes you aware of your of your penetrability, in a way, and that that barrier of the body or the skin or the surface itself is something that um, you know can be dissipated very easily. Um, and I feel this is really a moment of awareness of that in a way that I hadn't experienced before. So it was really a great invitation to listen to your work and read your works and um, yeah, and just think about these things a little bit in the context of this contemporary moment when we are seeing each other in such a non-bodily way or, and experiencing each other in such kind of dislocated and um you know like looking at this i don't know whose eye contact is on who ever and <laughs> yeah it's quite interesting how, how far away we are in many ways but we but I, I i have been really enjoying a lot of the sharing has felt very profound as well 
I don't know if you had that experience of, um, you know, lockdown. It felt like there's something also being not in the same space physically has allowed for maybe other defences to not be there maybe as well. I think there's definitely like a generosity and a willingness to like yeah. and make more time for each other and I don't know yeah I, th I think that's, yeah. that feels very much a real thing. And it feels yeah. different to prior to that which is a really interesting kind of distinction I guess. Mm, yeah. yeah even like looking at how you know this is part of a group of conversations collective conversations that we're doing with the course and um we couldn't have our introductory symposium in person, so we had to do it virtually, uh, just like this. <laughs> um, and like for me, and I think for so many of our, um, you know, peers, it was just such a lovely experience. Just everyone like typing on our group chat, um, giving each other compliments, and like yeah. Um, just yeah, sharing that kind of joy for each other. And, yeah, I'm willing to participate because, in a way, I mean, not that you like have to participate, but that, but like the access and the ability, you know, you don't need to travel to London to do the symposium. Mm -hmm. Like, there is benefits to. to oh, yeah, definitely. And I, I do think, you know, even, yeah, I think, you know, for, like being with a group of people that you don't know can, on a very uh, subliminal level, can make you nervous, you know, and can make you more guarded. And I think that there has been like quite like weird. I mean, I, I definitely miss, you know, the kind of energetic fields that we all coexist in. But I think there's been also a willingness to be very intimate mm. out of maybe a lack of other ways of being so, you know, that has come through the verbal and the communicative, which I found really beautiful. Yeah. yeah. So thank you. Thank you for today. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye.